Hi everyone, welcome back to the History in 20 podcast. Thanks for tuning in. So again today we've got another request from James and Jimmy specifically. Two different people that is, promise, honestly. (laughs) So we're talking about Genghis Khan today. So I'll give you a little bit of information about who he was. So that wasn't his actual name. His name was actually, and first of all actually before I start, I'm going to apologise about any pronunciations in this because... I've no idea how to pronounce any of these names properly, so if you'll just bear with me. If anyone does know, let me know. So, his birth name was Temujin Borjigin, and he was born circa 1162, so around about 1162, in the Kenti or Kentai Mountains in Kamag, Mongol, in Mongolia. So, he was actually, and then he, he died in on the 18th of August, 1227, so he was aged around about 64 to 65 in Yinchuan in the Western Jia province in China. So he had a number of titles in his life. Uh, he was the first Kagan and Emperor of the Mongol Empire, the Supreme Khan of all the Mongols, and the King of Kings, as well as the Jin Emperor. And he reigned from round about spring 1206 up until his death, like we said, on the 18th of August 1227. Now he had approximately 11 marriages in his life, And children is a funny one because he had 22 acknowledged children, but the estimates are up to 2,000. Yep, 2,000 illegitimate children in total. And it's estimated today, I think, something along the lines of one in six people who live in Asia are direct descendants from Genghis Khan. So he he got around a fair bit. So first of all, we'll start off with, with his early life. So, like I said before, for simplicity, I'll just I'll refer to him as Genghis Khan rather than Temujin Borjigin because I don't even know how to pronounce that. But I know how to pronounce Genghis Khan, so if you'll forgive me, we'll refer him refer to him as Genghis Khan throughout this. So, like I said, he was born into a small clan in the Kenti Mountains in northeastern Mongolia, around about eleven sixty two. And if you can see the picture of the map, which should be on the screen about now. The uh, Kentai Mountains lie just north of Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital of Mongolia. So it sort of borders Russia almost, they're up the high, high northern Mongolia. So although we do actually know little of his early life, there's still sufficient evidence to piece together his early years. So Genghis's father was poisoned and killed when Genghis was only eight years old, and his father was head of the clan. So the clan who were at this point lacking any sort of effective leader... Um, because there were, the rest of the senior members of the clan banished Genghis's mother, his brothers, his half-brothers, and Genghis himself. And uh, there's reports from one early record written about two or three decades after Genghis's death, reported that as, as a child and adolescent, Genghis and his immediate family had to forage for food, and they lived primarily on carrion, mice, and plants in order to survive. So in other words, this great leader, this epic military leader, had been at the very bottom of the societal pecking order and he still managed to rise to the top. So we could say it slightly romanticised this event, which it probably is, but the point is he was still banished from his clan and he still managed to work his way back up to the top. And he didn't do it immediately. Like He, he was eight when he was banished from the tribe and it took him until he was in his 40s till he managed to achieve the title of Genghis Khan, which, if anyone's interested, literally translates as Great Ruler. So Genghis Khan means Great Ruler. And he was. So how did he do this? So I've sort of pieced together the years from round about 1180, so when Genghis is about 18, up to 1206. So between from when he's about 18 to the start of his reign, so from 20 to 40 sort of, if you like. 
So, like I said, although that largely romanticised account suggested that he had been at the very bottom of the societal pecking order, which he had in truth, it didn't mean that his family had also come from the bottom. So Genghis's grandfather, who was called Kabul Khan, had defeated the Jin dynasty in China on numerous occasions, and he was actually a successful Mongol warrior. Uh, successful enough that he was able to lead his clan, and Genghis's father was, and so on. So, in around 1180... There was actually a sudden decrease in temperature on the steppe, on the Mongolian steppe, which sort of flatlands and desert plains around Mongolia and China. Uh, there was a sudden decrease in temperature, and it obviously brought about a climatic crisis. So it was too cold for the grass to grow, and thus there was insufficient grass for the tribe's animals to graze. So this situation was eventually rectified by none other than Genghis himself. So he unified the warring tribes and led them south to the agriculturally rich Chinese lands. Now, historian Bamba Gascoigne, who's an excellent sort of historian for this period, uh, he argued that Genghis united the various Mongol tribes and clans through a combination of trust and terror. So while he was building up his following, Genghis rewarded uh, courage and loyalty. So basically, anyone who'd fought well against him but had been defeated was offered a promotion in Genghis's army. Now, this is different to when we see the European history in the Plantagenets, if you remember, if you cast your minds back a couple of months when I was doing those podcasts. So, someone who'd fought well against them but had been defeated, let's say the example would be John II in France, um, when he fought against Edward III's armies, what happened to him? Was he offered a promotion in Edward's ranks? No, he wasn't, he was thrown in prison. Or David II against Edward III's army, was he offered a promotion? No, he was kept as a prisoner of war. So it's quite interesting how the sort of Asian and European British style differs with regard to that. So anyway, in... Uh, Obviously, only in Genghis's time, only cowardice and treachery were actually punished. So, in later years, though, when he was expanding into alien lands, into foreign lands, the conditions were actually reversed. So, towns which had put up a brave resistance were rounded up and brutally massacred in public. So, one source actually reported that Mongol troops were given battle axes and told to set to work with them on the citizens of the towns which were unfortunate enough to be in Genghis's path. And one uh, chronicle reports that on one occasion a tally of ears was required as proof that the Mongol soldiers had dispatched their allotted quota, uh, which is pretty pretty bad really. <laughs> um, and obviously fear ultimately played its part in the expansion of Genghis's empire. So spies infiltrated city walls and spread the word that the immediate surrender might be rewarded with mercy. So obviously uh, citizens rarely needed any persuading to surrender quickly when they knew that Genghis and his Mongol armies were on the on the warpath. Uh, but obviously, aside from the psychological aspect of empire building, Genghis also physically strengthened his empire, and this was via one famous medium, and it was the horsemen. So the Mongolian horsemen were absolutely notorious wherever they went. Now, they were specially trained from a young age, and they were able to stand up in the stirrups while the horses were charging in battle, and able to fire their heavy bows with incredible accuracy to devastate in effect. Now, the horsemen were also able to communicate news at a rapid speed across the empire by galloping in relay day and night across the steppes and deserts of Central Asia. So, obviously, the land sort of plays their advantage. It's kind of flat and barren, so they can charge across there whatever speed they like, really fast as they like. And uh, they can also, obviously, with as well as kind of fighting across there, they can also transfer news, which is, again, how news was spread so quickly across Genghis's empire. So the next section I've put in is sort of the major conquests in the later years. So from circa 1206, when Genghis becomes Genghis Khan, 
up to 1227 up to his death so we have a lot going on in this period um, so to start off with the first image many of us conjure up when we think of the term mongols is one of bloodthirsty unreliable chaotic tribal warriors so in fact under genghis khan the rise of the mongols was the complete opposite it was actually the result of ruthless planning streamlined organization and a clear set of strategic objectives one of the most devastating of which was a decision to defeat the Western Xia in China in 1209. So in the immediate years preceding this invasion, Genghis had defeated his rival tribes north of the wall, so on the Mongolian side. And the wall I'm referring to there is, of course, the Great Wall of China. So he did this from approximately 1206 to 1209, and after some careful planning, he set out to northern China in 1212. So the Mongol army swept across China between 1212 and 1213, laying waste to over 90 cities, 9-0 cities. And by 1215, they'd actually taken the Jin capital of Yanjing, which is today modern-day Beijing, which forced the Jin emperor Zhuangzong to flee south to Kaifeng. Now, this led the Mongols to occupy the northern half of his kingdom and for Genghis Khan to proclaim himself Jin emperor, or emperor of the Wan dynasty. Now, all that remained of the Lao dynasty was an area referred to as the Western Lao, and Genghis conquered this in the foreign year. So hopefully you'll be able to see all this on the maps and visualise it on the maps on your screens at the minute. So we'll fast forward a few years, and in 1218-19, Genghis sent out a 500-man strong caravan to the Silk Road, which was the major trading route connecting Europe to China, after he saw the benefits of opening up trade links with the Khwarezmian Empire, which covers territory in modern-day Iran and Persia. However, his caravan was attacked by the governor of the Khwarezmian city of Otra, which is now a ghost town and archaeological site in modern-day southern Kazakhstan. Obviously, this news infuriated Genghis. So to add insult to injury, any envoys he sent out were beheaded, which forced Genghis into action. So in 1219-20, to 20, a huge Mongol force set out from the empire and defeated the Shah's army. So Genghis followed up by taking Samarkand and Bukhara, which are both modern cities in modern-day Uzbekistan. And he tore everything down from royal palaces to towns and innocent civilians and everything. So tore it all to the ground. So by late 1220, the Khwarezmian Empire had been completely destroyed by Genghis's forces. So after the destruction of the Khwarezmian Empire in 1220, the Mongols then split into two forces. So Genghis returned to Mongolia with half of his army, and he raided through Afghanistan and India on the way back. While two of his most trusted generals, Jebe and Subtai, Subatai, rode through the Caucasus and into Russia, and they spent the winter by the Black Sea before returning back to Mongolia. Now, thanks to their conquests north and Genghis's conquests to the east, the area known as Transoxiana, which is the part of Central Asia that covers modern-day Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, southern Kyrgyzstan and southwest Kazakhstan and Persia, was now all part of the Mongol Empire. So during the mid-1220s, so estimates sort of rally from summer 1224 to spring 1225, the Tanguts of the Western Xia and the defeated Jin dynasty joined forces in an attempt uh, to subdue what they believed to be an exhausted Mongol army. So in 1226, Genghis Khan attacked and quickly took Haise, Ganzu, Suzu and Jiliangfu by the autumn. So in early 1227, he destroyed the Tangut capital of Ninghai and continued onwards with his advance. So by summer 1227, he'd already taken the imperial family as prisoners and he had them executed. Now, the most widely reported incidents of Genghis's death comes from this area. It was reported that he was castrated by a Tangut princess 
in revenge for, in revenge for his treatment of her people to prevent him from raping her. Now he's said to have died a result of his wounds and thus came the end of Genghis Khan. So what legacy does Genghis have? Well, we've all heard of him. Um, obviously we all know the name, but what happened to him after his death? So his legacy didn't end rolling on the marbled floor of a Tangut castle. So as was customary at the time, his empire was divided up between his four sons. These were his four major sons, not his other 18 acknowledged ones and a couple of daughters and stuff. So um, it created four great Mongol kingdoms, which were known as Khanates. Obviously after Khan, great, great ruler, Genghis Khan. So they're called Khanates. So there's the Wan Dynasty in the east, which contained China and Mongolia. Hopefully you'll be able to see this on the map on your screen. The Changtai in Central Asia, around Transoxiana, the area I described earlier. The Golden Horde to the northwest, which stretched from Siberia to Eastern Europe. And the Ilkhanate, which trickled down to Persia and Arabia. Now, Genghis Khan's descendants had successfully created the largest land empire in history. I mean, the British Empire was the largest empire in history, but it stretched across sea, whereas the, the Mongol Empire stretched right across land, right from Korea in the Far East, up to sort of Poland in the West. So the largest land empire in history, stretching, like I said, from the East China Sea to Poland at its peak in the mid-13th century, and it united millions of people under one rule. Now, this rule was tolerant in some respects, but we have to remember that, unfortunately, it was largely founded on the principles of total and complete warfare. So like I said before, on fear and trust, it was founded on the Mongol Empire. Now... Some readers and listeners may remember my last blog post and podcast about the Black Death and how I referred to the Mongols as referred to as Tartars. Now this name was a reference to Tartarus from ancient Greek mythology, which was the Abyss of Torment. And that's how many Europeans saw these massive hordes of Mongol warriors and, in fact, largely how they're remembered today. So reports of their advance actually reached as far as Scotland in the 13th century. And according to one source... Herring, like the, the fish, went unsold in ports on the eastern coast of Britain because the merchants who usually came to buy it from the Black Sea didn't dare to leave home for fear of the Mongols ransacking their towns and villages, which shows the sort of the fear that they sort of created the Mongols. Um, and by 1241, the Mongols had reached Europe successfully and again split in for t- into two hordes, one headed for Poland and the other headed for Hungary. Now, their philosophy was simple, the Mongols. They had a worldview which stopped at nothing short of global domination. And conquering Europe was their next logical step in imperial expansion. So for a medieval empire to reach this far was not only an incredible achievement, but synonymous with the supreme ability and legacy of the great ruler himself, Genghis Khan. So thanks for listening today, everyone. If you'd like to subscribe, like, comment, let me know what you think about the video, please do. Um, If you want to invite your friends or share it with your friends who might not have seen this video again, please do. Very grateful for any shares on social media channels. You can obviously find me on Facebook at History in 20 or you can email me over at historyin20 at gmail.com. And if you'd like any books to read on this, I'll put a little bibliography together on the blog, so I'll quickly run through those now. Uh, So the four best books I kind of found on this are readily accessible via websites like Amazon and eBay if you'd like to buy them. There's a the Silk Roads, A New History of the World, which is by Peter Frankopan, and that was published in 2015. Excellent read. Uh, Bamba Gascoigne's A Brief History of the Dynasties of China, 3,500 Years of Chinese Civilization, 
that's really really worth it. It's about hundred and eight. It's about 180, 200 pages, so it's not too long. Um, there's a lot of good information on the Mongols in one of my favourite authors, Dan Jones, The Templars, The Rise and Spectacular Fall of God's Holy Warriors. That was published in 2017. And Gordon Kerr's A Short History of China, From Ancient Dynasties to Economic Powerhouse, which was published in 2013. So if you'd like to find out any more about those, please do check those books out. Excellent reads. So thanks for listening, everyone, and I will catch you next time. Cheers. See you later.